You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Colossians. Here's Nate. Well, it seems evident that some in the church in Colossae were beginning to drift from their original faith in Christ Jesus and were beginning to pursue other doctrines and other beliefs. The word fullness is a word that's used quite often in Paul's letter to the Colossian church. It's very possible that there were Gnostics who had come to Colossae claiming a deeper fullness, that there was something grander, better, more beautiful and wonderful than the message of Christ. Uh, Later in Paul's letter, especially in chapter 2, Paul would tell the Colossians in verse 4 of chapter 2 that he did not want them to be deluded with plausible arguments. In verse 8 of chapter 2, he says that he wants them to see to it that no one takes them captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Uh, In verse 11 of chapter 2, it appears that there were those amongst them who were preaching a gospel that included the act of circumcision, so bringing back the law. There were those, it appears in verse 16 of chapter 2, who were celebrating festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. In verse 18 of chapter 2, there were those who were insisting on asceticism, the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. And so Paul takes the time here to tell the Colossian church exactly where he stands in relationship to uh, Jesus Christ. Now, of course, remember, Paul had not gone to Colossae face to face. He had taught daily in Ephesus, and uh, one of his students, a man named Epaphras, had gone from Ephesus to Colossae and preached the gospel to uh, this city and town and the Colossian church was born. And so here they are now, they've begun really well in their faith, but some of them at least are beginning to drift, beginning to be tempted to walk into these other doctrines, these other beliefs, and to devalue Christ. And so Paul wants to tell them, where Christ stands in his estimation, which of course is the biblical spirit-filled and fueled estimation. Now, that said, uh, there are of course many things that vie for our attention today. And even I've found in the modern church, there are just thousands of things that capture our interest, our attention, thousands of things that we fall captive for or in love with. Uh, And Paul is going to go to great pains to tell us that there is no one and nothing worthy of our attention and our devotion above and beyond Jesus Christ. Jesus is supreme. And really, this is kind of an introductory now, these next few verses, an introductory statement from Paul, sort of getting it out there at the very beginning of his letter saying, this is where I stand uh, in my view of Jesus. And he'll tell us that Jesus is supreme 
over creation, that Jesus is supreme over the church, and that Jesus is supreme in our reconciliation unto God. He is the one who reconciles us to the God of the universe. First of all, in verse 15, he's supreme over all creation. He says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now that title, firstborn of all creation, is an interesting title for us to consider, especially from the standpoint that it is biblically a title. Uh, You and I probably, for the most part, when we use the phrase firstborn, uh, we're not using it necessarily as a title regarding a position, but a timeline in a particular family. Uh, For instance, I'm a firstborn child. There's me and then there's my younger sister. I am the firstborn by three years and grew up. Uh, as the firstborn, the child that was born first with all of its privileges, with all of its difficulties and trials. My parents were figuring it out with me and uh, had some things mastered and perfected by the time they got down to my little sister. And so when we speak of firstborn, we're usually talking about the child that is born first. However, Paul will go on in verse 16 and say, by him, this is speaking of Jesus, by him, all things were created, whether in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so Paul in verse 16 will repeat twice for emphasis that Jesus created all things. So it would be impossible to use the title firstborn for Jesus in the sense of he was the first one created. Of course, we know that to be an unbiblical idea. John would tell us at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus is the word uh, who became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And in the opening phrases of his gospel, he tells us that the word existed from eternity past And that the word created was responsible for creation. And here, the firstborn of all creation is the same character as the word there in John 1, Jesus Christ, responsible for creation. So when Paul says that he's the firstborn of all creation, he's not saying that he's the first in timeline, but that he has a position over all of creation. And certainly as you study and read the Old Testament, you discover there are many times where the firstborn child is actually not uh, placed in the position of the firstborn. Uh, There are others on down the line, whether the second or even further down the line, who are given the responsibility, the great blessing, the great position of being the firstborn. So Jesus here is supreme over all of creation. As God had said or prophesied in in, uh, Psalm 89, verse 27, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so even though there were other kings who appeared before Jesus appeared, 
Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of all the kings of the earth. He is in a place of supremacy over all creation. Now, of course, we would ask the question, why? Well, first of all, you see there in verse 15, a powerful statement concerning the deity of Christ. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. This word for image means likeness or representation, visible image, exactly like God. Jesus is the exact and perfect representation of God in every detail, which of course means that he is God himself. You cannot be the image of the invisible God visibly unless you are the visible God himself. And so Jesus became for us the visible God. Of course, they understood this concerning Jesus's claims in the New Testament era. When he walked around claiming to be the son of God, they wanted to kill him for blasphemy because he was making himself to be equal with God. And so Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This is wonderful from the standpoint that we learn about the nature and character from God from observing Jesus. You know, when we see the sorrow of Christ at Lazarus's tomb, as he saw the weeping of mankind over the death that had overtaken one of their loved ones, as we see Jesus's compassion for those who were hungry uh, at the feeding of the five and 4,000, as we see his hatred for hypocrisy and judgmental legalism in the religious leaders as we see his insistence on blood sacrifice for sin as we see his unswerving dedication to saving mankind as we see his power over every every realm including the demonic and as we see the beauty of his coming kingdom we are seeing the nature and the character of God himself. He is the image of the invisible God. Paul goes on, however, in declaring the supremacy of Jesus over all of creation to say in verse 16 that by him all things were created. Now this is interesting because, of course, Paul is making quite a statement declaring that there in Genesis chapter 1, when you read that God said, let there be light, and so on and so forth, this was the eternal Son of God who was involved, at the very least, in creation, and at most is responsible for all of creation. The Father, not here in Colossians 1, not mentioned at all in this process. And so by him all things were created. Everything, of course, falls into one of two categories, created or creator. And of course, there were those in Colossae who were beginning to fall in love with created things, emanations from God and, and the like. And Paul is declaring that Jesus is none of those things, but he is in the creator category. And then he says specifically, that Jesus was involved in creating all things, but specifically things in heaven or things on earth, things visible and invisible. But he wants to mention specifically here in verse 16, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. 
Now, this is a an allusion to the angelic realm. And there were those, it appears, from chapter 2, verse 18, who were insisting on the worship of angels. And here, Paul is quick to say, listen, Jesus created the angelic realm. So when you're insisting on the worship of angels, saying that that is better than worshiping Christ, you are actually worshiping something that Christ created. Be careful what you worship. I've found that mankind often loves to worship that which God created, and especially the most beautiful things that he has created. And of course, the angelic realm would be uh, part of the most beautiful of all of God's creation. Of course, here on earth, we look around and we see the creation. We see the sun, the moon, the stars. There have been humans who have worshipped these things for generations now. When we see the trees and the ocean and the mountain ranges, there are those, of course, who would worship creation itself. But all of them in their beauty and splendor should cause us to elevate higher than the creation and to worship the creator behind the creation. Listen, be careful. I found that sometimes even Christians will fall prey to worshiping a relationship or worshiping a child that God has given to them. But these are created beings and they cannot handle the force of our worship like Jesus Christ can. They will ultimately let you down, betray you, bring you dissatisfaction, but Jesus never fails. And so allow your worship to be thrust and cast in his direction. Notice here at the end of verse 16 that Paul says all things were created through him. That's incredible, but also for him. What a statement of deity. All of the created elements were actually created for Jesus. He is the point. He is the goal of all creation. All of creation is incomplete without its fullest meaning, uh, without Jesus. He is, verse 17, before all things. Everything that you look at, everything you see, Jesus existed before all of that. But he's in a place of priority and rank above it. And Paul says as well, and in him, all things hold together. This creation that we're observing and that we often celebrate, Jesus holds it together. It's amazing. What holds the universe together? Here Paul tells us that all things are held together in Jesus Christ. Peter tells us that one day, The heavens and the earth will melt away with a fervent heat. I believe that the church will be raptured, meet the Lord in the air, dwell with him. That then there will be a time of seven years of great tribulation on the earth, especially in the final three and a half years of that tribulation. I believe Jesus will then visibly return to this earth where he will rule and reign for a thousand years, his church with him. I believe then at the end of that thousand years, there will be one final rebellion against the Lord where he will slay his enemies. The judgment will be complete and the heavens and the earth at that point 
will melt away with a fervent heat, making way for a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. How will the heavens melt away with a fervent heat? Well, I wonder if Jesus might just let go at that moment. And as he lets go and ceases to hold all things together, everything just melts and burns with a fervent uh, heat. And so in him, Paul says, all things hold together. He is supreme over all of creation. Now in verse 18, Paul makes a second declaration. He says he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul now talks about Uh, A second category that Jesus is the firstborn in. And so he had at first proclaimed the supremacy of Jesus over creation. Here he says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. So Paul is declaring quite clearly that Jesus is not just the head of creation, but also the head of the church. And don't you like the title that Paul gives to the church. It's not the only place that he puts this title for the church. He calls the church the body. In other places, it's very clear that we are the body of Christ. Jesus is our head. And so in one sense, when you think of that particular picture of the church, you understand that the church is nothing without Jesus. Without our head, we're nothing. I mean, what body would be anything without its head. I've heard a doctor say that we might need to amputate a limb or we might need to remove a specific uh, organ or body part, but I've yet to hear a doctor suggest that we need to remove the head from this body. No, the head is necessary. The head is standard equipment. The head is required. The head, of course, speaks of authority over the church. Jesus is our authority and Jesus is our life. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning, he says here in verse 18. You know, without Jesus, there really was no start to the church. He's the cornerstone of the church. And the reason he's the beginning, verse 18, is that he's the firstborn from the dead. Every man and every woman on earth will die. Death is certain for all of us. Jesus, however, is the one who provides a way of escape from eternal everlasting death because he's the firstborn from the dead. The first to rise from the dead in a resurrected new eternal body, never to die again. Lazarus and all the others in the Bible who rose from the dead would only die again, but Jesus rose never to die again. He's the first one to really defeat death. And so he's the firstborn from the dead. We have no life outside of and without Jesus. And so because of this, Paul says in verse 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. For a Christian, it's all about Jesus. It's amazing that the Colossians were beginning to veer from this simple reality. Pause for a moment to just consider Jesus as the preeminent one, Jesus as the head of the body, 
the church. You know, if he's our head and if we're his body and if he is to be preeminent in every single thing of our lives, what this speaks of is the extreme importance of fellowship with Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 15 to his disciples that if you abide in me, I will abide in you and you will bear much fruit. He is the vine, we are his branches. And as we connect to him, as we fellowship with him, as we have a relationship with Jesus, the life of Jesus as our head comes flowing into us as his body. And we live by the power and the strength of Jesus. He is preeminent in everything in our lives. I would encourage you, wherever you are, wherever you might be listening, I would encourage you to hold steadfastly to your head, Jesus Christ. Don't swerve from a relationship with him. So many Christians want to turn to lists to try to perfect them. I find so many Christians like to turn to legalism. I think the human heart is a law-making factory. You know, we love to create rules and regulations to approve ourselves unto God. I think many times, uh, if I were to break it down by gender, although the heart of man is able to create laws and the heart of women can create law, I think that, uh, if anything, from what I've seen, quite often men will create a a, an overabuse or an overemphasis, or not just an overemphasis, probably more appropriately said, a wrong definition of grace, sort of an antinomian lawlessness kind of reality, which is incorrect. And I've found that oftentimes women are more susceptible to a legalism and a harshness in the faith, a set of rules and regulations. What Jesus wants for all of us is a relationship with Christ that then bears fruit in our lives. Not a bunch of laws and rules and regulations, but actual legitimate transformation and change. Paul says in verse 19, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There were those in Colossae claiming that there was fullness found in some other place, in other emphases, in other doctrines, in the worship of angels, or the keeping of Sabbaths, or circumcision, or whatever it might be. And Paul says, listen, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell with Christ. As John said in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and we beheld his glory, full of grace and full of truth. So here Paul has made much of Jesus. He's proclaimed him as supreme over creation and supreme over the church. And now he begins to speak about the supremacy of Christ in his ability to reconcile all things, including individuals, Unto God. He says in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. And, and what Paul is saying is 
that through Jesus, God reconciles to himself. The Father, through the Son, reconciles to himself all things. And so really, there is nothing that cannot be reconciled by the Father. He is able and can reconcile anything, whether on earth, he says, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You know, there was hostility between God and man, but the Father creates peace through the blood of the cross of his own son, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And you, verse 21, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled, verse 22, in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I love the honesty of scripture and especially the apostle Paul. He tells us in various places that we are children of wrath, that we are dead in trespasses and sins, that there is none righteous, no, not one. Here he tells us in verse 21 that we were alienated from God, of course, hostile in mind. We had this mindset that was anti-God, anti-His revelation. We looked at creation and wanted to resist the idea that He created it. That there was this supreme being and God over all of us who could dictate our affairs and tell us what is right and what is wrong. We were hostile in our minds. He tells us, verse 21, doing evil deeds. There was this evil inside of us. This is who we were. But through his blood, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Those who have believed he has reconciled. Those who have partaken of the cross of Calvary, the blood of Jesus, he has reconciled. Notice where he's reconciled us. Verse 22, in his body of flesh by his death. All those bulls and goats that were sacrificed in the Old Testament era, they had spoken of the perfect sacrifice that was to come. The flesh of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And notice where he takes us, verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. That means above correction before him. Just beautiful. The only way that we can stand before God uh, holy and blameless and above correction is by the blood of his son. He says in verse 23, however, to the Colossians, he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He concludes these glorious thoughts about Jesus as the firstborn over all creation and the firstborn from the dead as our reconciler, supreme over creation, supreme over the church, supreme in our reconciliation by saying, continue in the faith, 
Be steadfast. Cling to the hope of the gospel. Don't buckle. Don't shake. Don't move. Don't shift. But hold fast to Jesus Christ. And of course, that exhortation would stand for you and for me today. Hold fast to Jesus. Don't give in to some weak legalism. Don't give in to some weak keeping of the Sabbath and festivals. Don't give in to some weak worship of self-control and self-discipline and self-sacrifice and asceticism. Don't give in to that. Don't give in to the worship of anything beneath Jesus. Worship him. Cling to him. Let him change you and transform you. He'll make you into the person that you long to be. But you've got to remain steadfast in clinging to the faith and the hope of the gospel. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.